All the Light We Cannot See is the best-selling novel by author Anthony Doerr. All the Light We Cannot See tells the story of World War II through the eyes of two children. The little French girl living in Paris has lost her eyesight due to cataracts. The little German boy living in an orphanage in rural Germany cannot see much beyond the rural confines of the German countryside, but he can listen secretly in the night in the orphanage to voices on international radio waves, some coming from France. He's a natural-born scientist, and he tinkers with radios for fun. And you can just guess from the beginning of this book, All the Light You Cannot See, that somehow the lives of the little French girl and the little German boy will intersect. But what you cannot yet see is how their perception of the world could change. The German boy is pressed into service by the Nazis who need his scientific talent in determining the location of the enemy radios so they can bomb those spots. Slowly, though, the little boy, as he becomes a teenager, begins to question whether or not he wants to use his scientific expertise for the enemy, to, to hurt the enemy, or to join the resistance movement. And the blind French girl faces a similar dilemma. Will she use her resources to play it safe or to resist? Both the little boy and the little girl struggle to see the future. What is the right thing for each of them? What is the future of their country? These two characters in the novel remind me of the two main characters in this morning's scripture lesson. Both Eli and Samuel are unable to see what lies ahead. They struggle to discern what each of them is called to do next. The text tells us that Eli's eyesight has grown dim. He cannot see. He's an old man, a priest, and he's asleep in his apartment in the temple complex. Samuel is just a young man, maybe a teenager. Samuel's mom, Hannah, had him dedicated, much like Jocelyn and George just had Charlotte dedicated a moment ago. And now, Samuel is taking his turn, probably as what we would call a youth deacon, and it's his turn to serve in the temple and to spend the night sleeping by the candles, guarding the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy Scriptures of God. He doesn't yet know much, the text tells us, the word of the Lord hasn't yet been revealed to him. We would call him a young whippersnapper today. But Samuel wakes up in the middle of the night because he hears some kind of voice. He runs to his mentor, Eli. You called? No, I didn't. Go back to bed. He lies down again on his sleeping bag near the burning candles next to the Ark of the Covenant, and it happens again. Go back to bed. I didn't call you, says Eli. I'm suspecting he's annoyed at this point of being awakened in the night, but the third time it happens, Eli is wide awake, and it dawns on him something is happening. Samuel, the next time you hear the voice, don't wake me up. Instead, say, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. 
And the next time the voice is heard, Samuel and God have a life-changing conversation, and Eli remains asleep in his apartment. Both Eli and Samuel have clouded vision. God is speaking, but they don't get it. Perhaps the same thing happens to you and me. What prevents us from hearing God's voice? What clouds our vision today? I think of the man who went to see his therapist because he was so confused about his marriage. He'd fallen in love. They'd dated for several years. They'd been married five years now. But it seemed like they no longer wanted the same things out of life. And he had developed a crush on a woman at work. His vision was clouded. I remember my friend in college who didn't score well on the MCAT when he had spent his entire life certain that he would follow in his father's footsteps and become a physician. His vision was clouded. I think about a girl who was in our pastor's class 12 years ago now. We were together in downtown Chicago doing a service project on a vacant lot next to the old housing project known as Cabrini Green in Chicago. As we worked, some of the kids living in Cabrini Green came out and began to shoot hoops, only they had no basketball hoop. All they had was a red milk crate that they had tied up with twist ties to the chain link fence. And that night, as we had closing devotions, one of the pastor's class students came to me and said, why is it that those kids in Cabrini Green have so little, not even a basketball hoop, when all of us in the pastor's class have so much and we've done nothing to earn it? Her vision was clouded. I think of the immigration officer who I heard recently on the news. He knocked on the door of a family in rural Arizona for a routine check and then he had to make a difficult decision about how to interpret the law. The father was undocumented. The children were citizens. He knew that if he took the father into custody, the family would be split up and the children would have no one to feed them. His vision was clouded. Sometimes our vision is clouded by the cultural norm of our day and each of us struggles to know what is the right thing for us to do next as an individual, as a church, as a nation. We are bombarded with the pressure that comes from the status quo of our society, and sometimes, no matter what news channels you listen to, your vision is so clouded that it is difficult to hear or see what it is God calls us to do next. Sometimes we just wish for a bolt of lightning to come and show us the way. A psychology professor named John Konos has written a book called The Eureka Factor, Aha Moments, Creative Insight, and the Brain. And he tells that these eureka moments actually do happen. And he cites the mathematician who was sauntering along 
the canal in Ireland in 1843 when a sudden insight came to him and the mathematician said it was like an electric circuit seemed to close and a spark flashed and in this moment of epiphany he began sketching on the stone walls along the canal the equation that came to him and that particular equation remains an important tool for scientists and engineers almost 200 years later. Why doesn't God send us a clear signal like that? Sometimes our vision is clouded because we need someone else to help us discern, a friend or a community or a small group. You see, Eli and Samuel discern the voice of God together. Eli tells Samuel, go and listen. And then Samuel tells Eli what God says. This happens in the verses that we didn't read, just following where we stopped today. And the instructions that God gives to Samuel, that then he tells to Eli, are harsh, difficult words. For Eli gets demoted because he has not stood up to the corruption leading the nation. It's a difficult message for young Samuel to deliver to his mentor Eli, telling Eli, God wants you to step down and me to step up. But together, they discern the rare voice of God. Sometimes, we just need one another in order to hear God. Think of those two great literary masters of our time who have given us not only such great literature, but also movies, C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien. They were buddies, friends, both professors at Oxford at the same time. They read each other's first drafts, encouraged one another, met frequently for conversation at the local pub. And think of the great Impressionist painters who banded together in Paris to forge a groundbreaking new way to capture a scene on canvas. They needed one another to make this bold step. Not long ago, I told my husband about this epiphany that I experienced when we were first dating. In fact, it happened on our very first date. We hadn't even gotten out of the car to go in to dinner where we had a reservation. We were just getting acquainted and visiting in the parking lot when he said something that just made a light bulb go off in my brain. And in that one phrase, several fragments of my life fell into place and I experienced a peace I hadn't known before. When I told this to my husband recently, he said to me, well, if that was the case, why did it take you four years to marry me? <laughs> it's just not always that easy to enter into a relationship, to open up, to join a community. And sometimes our vision is clouded just because we're afraid. What if we hear the message of God and it compels us to say or do something that we're afraid to say or do? Martin Luther King Jr. heard the summons from God to say and do what other people of his day were afraid to say and do. In a biography about Martin Luther King Jr., Richard Lisher describes 
how Dr. King heard God's summons to take a risk. God spoke to King, but not with lightning bolts, not like the mathematician who got this surge of energy and a clear formula, not with the crescendo of the choir or shouts of alleluia. God spoke to King not even with a voice. King was sitting in the pews in the Baptist church when he heard two impulses. One, things are not right. Two, God has every intention to make things right. Sometimes we see someone who seems to have moved beyond the limitations of our culture, moved past our fear of forming bonds with the wider community, friendships with others, and courageously found the ability to face down their fears and follow God's voice anyway. I think of Eleanor Roosevelt. Harold Ivan Smith was here last fall to speak at the Thanksgiving dinner, and he talked about his new book on the spirituality of Eleanor Roosevelt. In the book, he reminds us that while Eleanor Roosevelt was our first lady, Senator Robertson of Virginia argued publicly that segregation was the way that God intended for the races to live harmoniously. And Senator Eastland of Mississippi stood on the floor of the United States Senate and argued that segregation was not discrimination, but rather the law of nature. He even said it was the law of God. And Eleanor Roosevelt was absolutely appalled that anyone, let alone a senator, could use the teachings of Jesus to exclude people. Smith tells a number of amazing stories about Eleanor and the ways that she fought for equal rights for all Americans. But my favorite is the one about the African-American opera singer named Marian Anderson. After Marion sang at the White House in 1937, Eleanor described her singing as the most beautiful and moving voice she had ever heard. And then Marion was invited to sing in Washington, D.C.'s largest concert hall, holding 3,000 people. But the concert organizers canceled the concert and refused to rebook it denying that Marian Anderson's skin color was the reason. Eleanor was outraged. She and a few others went to work fighting an alternative venue for this Easter Day concert. They decided it would be held outside, just in the shadow of the Lincoln Memorial. That concert was broadcast live on the radio and 75,000 Americans, black and white, stood in Lincoln's shadow as Marian Anderson approached the microphone to sing, My country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty. Eleanor did not attend because she did not want to be a distraction, but Eleanor arranged for Marian to dress for the concert at the White House because none of the hotels in Washington, D.C. would book her a room. And overnight, Marian Anderson went from being a little-known singer to an American icon. And Eleanor 
later invited her back to the White House to sing for the King and the Queen of England. God speaks. God whispers. God nudges. God shouts. God can use a movie or a song or a dream. God can speak from a mountaintop or from a friend. Our dreams, our vision, often remain clouded by our culture, by the fractures in our community, by our deep-seated fear of change. But maybe that's okay. Maybe we just need to admit that all the light we cannot see and then join Samuel in saying, speak, Lord, your servant is listening.